Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for this meeting, I'll read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large number of numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA program of recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will pick up from where we finished last week, which is uh, chapter four, We Agnostics, about halfway down page 49, uh, with the paragraph starting, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearhead of God's ever advancing creation. Uh, that's the beginning of the paragraph. Uh, Tim will work through the text, paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. If you have a question, please use the raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. We will try and close around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. Evening, everyone. Very glad to be here. Sorry for being late. Um, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists chose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end of all, rather vain of us, wasn't it? And I think this is a marvellous, a marvellous paragraph, because it's instructive way beyond the confines of its purpose. So the purpose of this paragraph is to give us something which philosophers call epistemic humility. So humility, specifically about what we're capable of knowing, which is relatively little, there's a lot more that can be known than a person knows. Um, but I think there's a, some very helpful ideas about uh, the, the relationship between the individual and God having taken step three. So first of all, intelligent agent. It, I, I know a little bit about um, European civil law. One of the things I do know about is, is, is in, in Swiss law, there's a distinction between an agent and a mandatory and an agent is given the role of acting really in the name of and on behalf of the principle whereas a mandatory is just given the power to carry out a specific task within very narrow confines and it's interesting here because i we're not just um it, it says intelligent agents so we're to exercise some creative intelligence ourselves and not we're not just mechanical automaton turning our wills and our lives over to god over to god but we're not just as i say we're not just um you know entry-level employees there's something else going on we're to bring our full selves to bear someone once pointed out spearheads are very good uh if you've got a spearhead and you can tap it against your arm nothing will happen it has to have power behind it. It's the arm throwing the spear, which turns uh, an ordinary everyday object into a, into a weapon. Uh, so our, our job as the spearhead is to be sharpened, and then God's head is to provide the power behind it. Um, a lot of people I know, I don't know if you ever experience this, but a lot of people I know in recovery they always tell me how tired they are. I'm ever so tired, they say. I'm doing this, man, doing it. I'm exhausted. And uh, I once said that, I once said to Joe, my, my sponsor, that I was exhausted. And he said, uh, Jim Willis always says, uh, if you're tired, it's because you're trying to do your everyday tasks on your power, not God's power. You're trying to carry too much. And Emmett Fox conveys a similar idea about Atlas, who's carrying the world on his shoulders. And it's in fact in the big book on page uh, one, but let's skip to 132. We'll come back, I promise. Uh, we try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations. This is written in 1939. 
Uh, we try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the na nations, nor do we carry the world's trouble on our shoulders. Uh, but those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by that. And it's certainly my experience that most of my tiredness, well, I'm tired, it comes not from the activities themselves so much as a sort of superstructure of mental fretting on top of the activities. It, it, it's, it's from not being present in the tasks that I'm doing, but fussing about the past and fussing about the future and fussing about other people and fretting. So to, to rest in God, what's that Don Pritz idea to, to move slowly from task to task and rest in God in between, which I think is terribly good. So spearheads of God's ever, ever advancing creation. Uh, the notion of ever advancing creation is, I find helpful uh, as well. Uh, uh, my one idea my sponsor gave me is that, that there is a plan which is unfolding luckily you don't know what it is if you did you'd probably shrink back in anticipation of it so you don't have to understand what role you've got my sponsor says you don't you just have to do what's in front of you as expertly uh, and as god-poweredly uh, as you can and then the picture becomes the picture comes clear afterwards. When we look back, it says, I think on page 100. Um, now, I think it's important to point out that Bill is not poo-pooing intelligence. It's having intelligence in its place. And he'll say a So humility, which is recognizing your true place, comes first. We who have traveled this dubious path beg of you, beg you to lay aside prejudice. Now that's interesting. It doesn't say argue with it into the ground. You don't have so whatever prejudice one has, and I think this is so helpful. I, I get cross at states of affairs in the world. And rather than arguing with myself trying to convince myself I'm not supposed to be upset I'm to lay aside these judgments so literally to put them to one side and then they sort of wither wither on the vine even against organized religion we have learned that whatever the human frailties of those various faiths may be those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions uh, people of faith have a logical idea of what life is about actually we used to have no reasonable conception whatever we used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritually minded persons of all races colors and creeds were demonstrating demonstrating it's a very emmett fox term it's very interesting he uses that demonstrating a degree of stability happiness and usefulness which we should have sought um uh should have sought ourselves and the the i mean it's interesting it, in the world of, of philosophical to contemporary philosophical debate the argument is still going on between materialists physicalists and idealists about whether you know we do have humans have free will whether there is mind as something beyond the physical world or it's simply a a property of the physical world. Uh, uh, and so that this is not, it wasn't a new argument in 1939, and the argument is still going on with perfectly reasonable people on both sides. What's interesting here is that ignore that. You find someone who's stable, happy, and useful, and copy what they're doing. It's the demonstration which counts. Um, and have I told you the, I think I've, I have told you the Kurt, the Kurt, the, the, the story about Kurt in Arizona. Have I told you that one? Does that ring a bell, Alistair? It does, but I'm not sure it wasn't, I don't think it was on the, in this series. So, yeah. Okay, Ellie Shabby, you don't recall that one. Okay. So, a few years ago, I was in, I was on, uh, I was at the Fellowship of Spirit, uh, 
retreat. I was, it's not a retreat. It's a it was a AA conference really in in Sedona. Lots of crystals and ley lines. If you know anything about Sedona, um, and at the time there was something going on. I won't say what in American politics. There's always something going on, but there was something particular going on. And people were very spooked. It was a few years ago now. People were very spooked. And I sat down for dinner one, one morning. I wanted to, to nap now. Uh, Kurt had been sober for very many years, but had slipped at 19 years sober and was now back and was back for many years. So a very interesting character from Los Angeles. He'd been an old pal of Joe Hawks and that whole that whole crowd in, in Santa Monica. And I like Kurt enormously. And I sat down with him and I said to him, look, there's a lot going on at the moment in the world. And people are spooked. Even my sponsors, my hallowed sponsors, hallowed sponsors, a little bit spooked. And it takes a lot to spook Bill and his wife, Patty. And, and they, they were spooked. And I said to Kurt, are you spooked? Are you upset by this? And he's got these very sort of piercing blue eyes. He looked me dead in the eyes uh, uh, and said, no. And I, you know when someone's telling the truth, it was very clear. He was perfectly at peace within himself, perfectly at peace with the world. And I said to him, how do you do it? And he then didn't draw breath for an hour. Maybe that's where I get it from. Uh, <laughs> And it was very, it was, he was very interesting. But the point, the whole point of this story is he had what I wanted. So that's why I nabbed him for breakfast that day. And when he started talking, I did not interrupt. I just wanted to absorb what he was saying. And it was very, very useful. Uh, and I think this is a very good philosophy uh, in terms of what, it, what are we after? What are we after here? Stability, uh, happiness, and usefulness. Um, what he'll say elsewhere, and it's in, I think it's in 12 and 12 as well, the notion that it's usefulness which generates happiness. So if you, if you shoot for usefulness, you'll get happiness. If, if you shoot for happiness, you'll get nothing. And there's a very good speaker. There's only one tape of her. I don't know what happened to her. I hope she's all right. There's a tape of her from 30 years ago. She's uh, a Mexican-American woman from California called Cowenga, C-A-H-U-E-N-G-A. And she's very funny. Um, she's on XA speakers amongst other... I think she's on XA speakers. I originally got an actual physical tape of her in, in 1993, I think. And she said, if you want it, you can't have it. If you don't want it, you might get it, but no guarantees. And I love that. It's the wanting which blocks the thing from coming to me in the first place. So shooting for usefulness, shooting to be useful, to give out usefulness, will bring happiness. If I shoot for happiness, it will elude me because I'm shooting for it. Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. Okay, so this is, this is interesting. Okay, so this is a scenario which happens very often. You get a sponsee, you say to the sponsee, come to my home group. And for the first six weeks, Everything is great. They love it. They love the people at the meeting. They love the format. They love the fellowship afterwards. And then they start to get to know the people there. And within six months, what do people say? Oh, I don't like that meeting. Oh, everyone. And we've all been through this. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in particular because I've done this. They're all, and then insert adjective, I don't know, snooty cliquey, cold, uh, they're zealots, they're, they're fake, they're, they'll be, you know, whatever the charge du jour is. And you're like, buddy, there are 70 people at that meeting. 
have you have you really assessed everyone there or where's your sliding scale for cliqueiness how are you measuring this and it, it's something that i've done it's a terrible habit to look at a couple of small situations and then to misapply that assessment against the whole group um if you look there's an emmet fox I should get a commission from the Emmett Fox estate for all the plugs I give him. Uh, there, there, there is an Emmett Fox story, which he gets from the, I think the, the one of the founders of Quakerism, um, where someone goes to see this Quaker chap. He goes to a new town and he's a Quaker and he looks up the, the, the sort of head, head, the head honcho of the Quakers. I know Quakers don't have head honchos in that way, but he goes to the head honcho Quaker and says, what are the people like in this town? And the, the Quaker says, well, what were people like in the town you came from? And he said, they were mean-spirited, they were gossipy, and they were hypocritical. And he said, well, you'll find the people here much the same. The point being, you're not seeing something that's there. You're, you're looking for something to support a conclusion which has already been drawn. My sponsor calls it building a case. And I do it in AA, it can be done with religion, it can be done with spiritual people. We talked of intolerance whilst we were intolerant ourselves, ouch. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees some of the trees aren't even necessarily ugly we never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. in our personal stories you will find a, a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself whether we agree with a particular approach or conception seems to make little difference Experience has taught us that these are matters about which, for our purposes, we need not be worried. These are questions for each individual to settle for himself. And again, I know I'm repeating myself, but the chapter does the same thing, that if one disagrees with someone's particular conception, even Bill's, that's the curious thing about this chapter. This is the chapter where you're allowed to disagree with a whole load of stuff and it won't affect your program at all because he's presenting the general ideas of step two, but then for some very specific ideas about law. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Each one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. This power has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. As a celebrated American statesman put it, let's look at the record. Here are thousands of men, uh, I presume it was hundreds or 100 in the original. I haven't, I'm not going to get the first edition down, there are, but it's going to be different, I'm sure. There are the, here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. They flatly declare that since they've come to believe in a power greater than themselves, step two, to take a certain attitude toward that power, step three, and to do certain simple things, steps four through 12, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. Uh, it's, it's curious that the living comes first. You change the actions, the mind follows. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Uh, the, the few simple requirements, this is often talked about. If you want to know what Bill meant, look at what he said in Bill's story about the completion of certain things. When he says, when these things were done, if the, the, the price of entry is the completion of the task, specifically the amends. Uh, Tom Weston tells a similar story about someone who goes to heaven. Um, and he wants to be let in to heaven. and uh St Peter who I imagine is at the pearly gate says I'm a yeah have you met have you made peace with everyone on earth and he's well not not really no I've still got some stuff outstanding so St Peter says you need to I'm afraid rules of the house to get in you need to sort that out first then you can come in here 
so it's an old it's an old idea so bef before Yom Kippur there's the same idea that you're supposed to go and make peace with people and make amends and, and do all that sort of stuff so we didn't we didn't make it up the idea of making peace with people um that's our bit if we do that bit then peace with God is made automatically once confused and baffled by the seeming seeming futility of existence they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life step four leaving aside the drink question they tell while they tell why living was so unsatisfactory step four fourth column page 67 what were our mistakes so it's it's laying the groundwork here. they show how the change came over when many hundreds of people were able to say that the consciousness of the presence of god is uh, today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. One point, um, some, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but it's very apposite at this point. Um, at my lunchtime meeting in San Antonio, people are very fond of saying, I can feel the higher, I can feel God's embrace around me. Uh, and it's, it's all very nice. Ooh, uh, have I ever felt that? I don't know. But what I do know is that when I pray, ideas come into my mind that weren't there before. Uh, Bob Olson says, you can't know whether a particular thought comes from God, but if you pray sincerely, you have to trust that what comes is more likely to be from God. Very important principle. So one doesn't necessarily need to sense a physical presence. It's, a, it, it's, it's, it's I think it uh, can be for some people, it certainly is for me, an intellectual recognition that my head is full of ideas because of AA that were not there before I came to AA and I let them in. I was completely impervious to new ideas before AA and that changed in AA. And that is, I think, the most important manifestation of the presence of God. This world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than in all the millennia which went before. Almost everyone knows the reason. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today and women. Uh, the spirit of modern scientific inquiry research and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of the material, uh, men's, uh, just a point on that, he's not wrong here, Bill. You know, the, he, it's not bad historically. Uh, there's a story, I think it's a Francis Bacon story. John W. will correct me on this. I think Francis Bacon is late 16th, early 17th century. Okay, where he, tells a story, it's probably an apocryphal story, so one made up to make a point rather than a real one, where there were all of these monks and they were trying to figure out how many teeth there are in a horse's head. And all of them pull out these very, very elaborate arguments based on Plato and Aristotle and medieval theorists and Augustine and Aquinas and Boethius and and they're arguing for days. And this young priest says, why don't we just go over to the stables, open a horse's mouth, look in it and count, then we'll know. And he was drummed out of the monastery for being a heretic. superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. Um, some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought around Earth preposterous. Others came near putting Galileo to death for his astronomical heresies, and, and others too. Um, we asked ourselves this, are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as were the ancients about the realm of the material. 
even in the present century, American newspapers were afraid to print an account of the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts at flight failed before, um, did not Professor, Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the uh, Potomac River? Uh, if, if this gets read out in England, the British always say Potomac, and uh, all the Americans in the, in the meeting laugh. I think it's pronounced Potomac. Uh, was it not true that the best mathematical minds had proved man could never fly? Had not people said that God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only three years later, the conquest of the air was almost an old story and airplane travel was in full swing. But in most fields, our generation has witnessed complete liberation of our thinking. Show any longshoreman uh, a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket, and he'll say, I bet they do it, maybe not so long either. Is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new, by the complete readiness with which uh, we throw away this serial gadget which does not work for something new which does? And this is, a, I think, a terribly important principle. Whatever one's theory about the world and about oneself and about why one is so upset in a particular situation, uh, the question that a good sponsor will ask, rather than arguing with it, is, well, your way of living, how well is it working out for you? How's that working out for you, buddy? <laughs> That's the test. It's not the intellectual coherence of the position. It's, does it work or not? That's what really matters here. Um, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. And um, by the way, so throwing out the serial gadget which does not work for something new which does, um, uh, that can, I think throwing away a theory, it can operate at two levels. Uh, so one level, how well and economically does a theory explain what we can experience? That's a scientific basis for examining a theory. But the second one is how well does it work? And these are two different things. And I think both apply. So here we, now here, we've got the, the, the famous bedevilments. Uh, we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see new newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. Now, there are a few important points here. Number one. If you turn later on to the Step 9 Promises, pages 83, 84, they're an inversion of these. So like the before is these, and then the after is the Step 9 Promises. Um, this paragraph is often cited as a, as a, this is, you know, the Da Vinci Code approach to the big book where you look for secret hidden messages uh, as, as though uh, what people sometimes say is that well this is the spiritual malady which is intrinsic to alcoholism and it doesn't talk about in the big book this spiritual malady, malady being a third aspect of alcoholism it talks about that as a human issue uh, it doesn't limit it to being uh, an alcoholic problem. It doesn't indicate, and when you look at the 12 and 12, it's the same. Step one in the 12 and 12 only covers uh, physical craving, mental obsession, does not touch the spiritual malady. And it, it describes these not as alcoholic problems, but as human problems. Now, I think some people in AA, they haven't necessarily met people who aren't in AA. So maybe they haven't figured out that these are pretty universal problems. So what relevance does this have to alcoholism? Um, 
uh, I think the the answer comes in uh, partly in Dr. Jung's correspondence with with Bill W. saying that we found alcoholics find in alcohol uh, a solution to a, a fundamental dis-ease which comes from not being connected with God. So the only difference between alcoholics and non-alcoholics is not the fundamental dis-ease, it's the fact that for us alcohol works and for non-alcoholics alcohol doesn't work, it doesn't give them a kind of substitute for a connection with God. Clancy, so that, you know, that the reading on this is it was not really reading, but you know what I mean, the reading this, listen, listen to some Clancy talking about Kamchatka vodka, it's one of his skits, talking about when he was working in um, uh, advertising, he had to come up with a slogan for Kamchatka vodka, and his slogan was something like Kamchatka vodka goes boom, and the other advertising executive said, it doesn't do that. It might do for you, but for other people, it goes, <laughs> it's just this little kind of gentle, does this little gentle thing with ordinary people. So that's the point. Alcohol does something different for us. That's why it does something to us. Uh, second point, how does this link to the chapter? And you see, the thing is, unfortunately, he doesn't set out the logic very clearly, but I think it's this. Um, if we all agree that the material world is important and it's important to be open minded and scientific in our approach with material things, if we're sold on that, it shouldn't be too much of a leap to apply essentially scientific, the scientific approach and open-mindedness to new ideas in the realm of the spirit, in other words, the realm of the personal, what is going on inside us, because that's much more important actually than radios and flight. So if, if, the, if the argument is valid for the material world, how much more valid is it for the, for the internal life? And spiritual, if you look up spiritual in a 1930s dictionary, some of them will simply say, the spiritual contrasts with the material. That's it. It's not fancy or woo-woo or tarot cards or anything like that. It simply means that which is not perceptible to the material senses, which is the fabric of what our lives are made of. Um, a, a short excursion, if you'll permit. Uh, um, uh, the Anglo-Irish bishop, George Barclay uh, developed a philosophy called idealism, or was one of the first philosophers to develop the idea of idealism, which basically holds the only thing which is real is essentially mind and spirit. The only thing we can be sure of is our own consciousness. Physical world, we don't know what it is. We don't know even that it's there. Descartes had some similar ideas and I can't remember who it was again John will know this some contemporary philosopher and writer disagreed with this and said I refute it and he said you refute it by kicking a desk or a lectern that's how I refute the idea that matter isn't real and the only thing that's real is spirit and this argument is still going on today and there's, there's a, a, a Brazilian philosopher who works uh in the Netherlands with Bernardo Castro, who is a, a philosopher and a computer scientist, which is an interesting. So he's, he's, he's well-trained and he's well-versed in physics. Um, and his view, uh, and it's a, whole, it's a whole school of thinking which has a basis in theoretical physics and in neurobiology, is that mind is the thing which is most real and the material world essentially comes out of mind. Most, I've certainly brought up with the idea that there isn't such a thing as a soul. There isn't such a thing as a spirit. We're basically very, very complicated chemistry sets which are driven by our own genetic programming and the chemistry 
and the electrical signals going on in our brains. And we only think we, we exist as people. We only think we are, um, uh, we, we have free will, but it's all an illusion. We're just machines. And that's still a view that there, there, there are certain that school of thought is still there. Um, but a lot of it, first of all, there are there's some very interesting, uh, there are very interesting ideas coming out of quantum physics about the nature of the physical uh, universe, specifically the question of whether we can take the physical universe as the thing which lies at the root of everything, or whether there's something else which is, for instance, the notions of it, it, its observation, which fixes uh, quantum particles and uh, essentially makes them materialize. I'm not, I won't be doing this justice at all. But also very interestingly, the relationship, the philosophy of the relationship between mind and body. So I was brought up with the idea, the mind is just a figment of the body's imagination. There's nothing really there. There's no spirit, there's no soul. You're, we're just uh, uh, almost, uh, uh, ideas of the body. We think we're real as people, but we're not. We're just, it's just illusory. And that, uh, things go on in mind, anything goes on in the mind is simply a result of a chemical reaction. The most recent advance, a lot of the most recent advances in, in neuroscience uh, are producing results which are very, very difficult to explain on the basis of that theory. I won't go on about this for too long, maybe another minute or so. But two examples. The first one uh, is that in near-death experiences and in um, uh, when, uh, and most, most usefully, possibly, as, uh, when psychedelics are administered, brain function as a whole is depressed. So the whole brain on the administration of certain psychedelics, the whole brain, essentially there's far, far less activity going on in your physical brain, but the mental experiences are far richer and far denser. It's the opposite of what should happen. Norm under normal conditions, the more rich the experience, the more dense the experience, the more intense the experience, through a so-called functional MRI, you can tell which bits of the brain light up. And you can say, aha, that experience, that decision was made here in this part of the brain. This experience correlates this experience you're having correlates with this bit of neural activity in the brain. Unfortunately, that's true in some cases, but there are lots of cases where that's not true, where there's all sorts of mental activity, which is not explained by the NCCs, these neurological correlates of consciousness. The, now, the point of doing that excursion is that questions, uh, a lot of people that I sponsor are very depressed. And they're philosophic, they're not just depressed in their lives, they're philosophically depressed. They've grown up with the idea that we are just machines. And lots of people have been psychiatrists who have said the same thing. I'm not absolutely nothing against psychiatrists. I don't know what is true in the world. I'm just reporting different schools of thought. I'm not, I'm not going to report my own views. Um, They'd be, I, I, I know plenty of people have been told, and I, I was told as well, been told by doctors, by psychiatrists, that their mental problems are simply a function of something going on chemically in the brain, nothing to do with the way you're living your life, nothing to do with your experience. It's just happening to you because of what is going on biochemically. That is not a universal view. So the, what the plea, the only plea here is for open-mindedness on the nature of who we are, why we're here, um, what the nature of, of a human, what does it say? What is a human being? Am I just the physical being or is there a mind beyond that? Is that, as people might put it in historical language, a spirit or a soul beyond that? What is consciousness? Where do we go after we die? To be open-minded on, on these and to recognize if you want to investigate these, you don't have to go to your little local esoteric shop which sells crystals and tarot cards to do it they're not the only people who are interested in this question 
There are plenty of uh, scientists who work in the area of artificial intelligence, physicists, apart from philosophers for whom this is their core subject, there are plenty of people who are developing other views. There is a whole world to discover. One needn't be depressed philosophically. Um, and I found a lot of people, this is an avenue which when, once it opens up, it gives them a huge amount of psychological relief to learn what other people in the world are investigating in the terms of what, what is it to be a human being. And it's exactly, it's exactly what this chapter is asking us to do, to be open-minded on spiritual matters, but not, but not to do it by simply throwing the material out and throwing the intellectual out. Anyway, lecture over. When we saw others solve their problems in our home group by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. Against in our home group, the literal people in my home group, not abstract, we can name them people that rely on God and are cheerful. Uh, old spiritual Paul in East London, who died of cancer a few years ago, was beatific to the end. I mean, admittedly, in the last few weeks, I think he was probably on quite a lot of <laughs> rather attractive opioids. But nonetheless, in the years that he was ill, he was cheerful, he was positive, he helped people right up until the end. Uh, Les, you got your question, you, you got your hand up. Do come with your question. Yeah, I do. A uh, previous paragraph, the, the bedevilments there. Is that not universally yeah. recognized as the second half of step one? Yeah. Yeah. So that, I'll, I'll, yeah, sorry. I, I, I didn't, if you did say that, I, I missed it. That's all. Thank you. Okay. So, so what I'll, what I'll do, I'll just, I'll just cover that briefly again because it's a, it, it's a, it's a big question. So, Step one, per the big book and per the 12 and 12, you've got a couple of elements. So element number one is left to my own devices. I go crazy and I drink. When I drink, the body takes over. I drink buckets. Terrible things happen. And so what does it mean to say I'm powerless? Dash, my life would become unmanageable. The, the, the waters are mudded by the Joe and Charlie tapes, where the, 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 the line that you hear is, uh, in English, a dash means end of old thought, beginning of new thought. And then people look at my life and become unmanageable and cite all the things other than alcohol. So like, my relationships are terrible and, you know, my boss is angry with me and I'm late for everything. And then they point at this paragraph. Now, it's not untrue. Those things are true. But the question is, are they alcoholism? And the difficulty with holding that they're alcoholism is that, well, people are just like that. People are incompetent and late and emotionally all over the place and have terrible relationships. You know, the divorce rate is not peculiar to alcoholics. And, and there are plenty of alcoholics who come into AA who are pretty well balanced in other regards. The use of the dash. Um, it, uh, and when you see how um, uh, Bill uses the dash in this book generally, it's not, I've finished with one thought, here's an entirely new and separate thought. There's always a logical entailment between the two halves. You even see it here. And I'll give an example of what a logical entailment would be. <clears throat> I have diabetes, dash, my sugar levels are unmanageable. If you've got the condition of diabetes, you cannot manage the level of sugar in your blood. So you have to have insulin to manage the level of sugar in your blood. If A is true, you have diabetes. B is automatically true. You can't manage your blood sugar levels. So you've got a problem. With alcoholism, if I'm powerless over alcohol, I can't choose whether I'm having a drink. Uh, and then when I've had a drink, I can't choose how much I'm going to drink. And when, when anyone gets drunk, they'll do, dumb, they'll do dumb stuff. I'm not in charge of the course of my life. Uh, 
whether or not my alcoholism kicks off today is in charge of the course of my life. I'm, I'm not in charge in that very fundamental way. And that point is explained. If you want a full explanation about manageability, it's in the, the, the third and fourth pages of the step one and 12 and 12. So where, now all of this stuff, it is part of the program. It is part of our experience. But where it comes in, again, is it, it's, it, it comes in step three. So you get to page 60. You're all ready to turn your will and life over to God. And it says, wait a minute, sunshine. Before you do that, let's just look at the nifty job you've been doing of running your life generally. Oh, so that's been a disaster as well. So not only do you have alcoholism, but you're also a mess. Well, wouldn't it make sense to turn the whole thing over anyway? I mean, you're going to have to do it anyway just to stay sober. But can you not see it would make sense to turn your world life over? So it gets brought in. Uh, so we're not we're, we're not missing anything by saying this. It just makes it a lot easier. I think sometimes there can be a distraction. I'll tell you why it, this is such an important thing. First of all, uh, newcomers who've got two cars in the garage, who are holding down a good job, who are in a reasonably happy marriage, really struggle with step one when they're told you have to admit that you're terrible at living in order to do step one. And I've seen that time and time again, people thinking that the steps are not for them, but they're told you have to admit that your life's a mess, when it's frankly not a mess, it's just intellectually dishonest. And secondly, now, have you heard that, have you heard this one? I came for the drinking, but I stayed for the thinking. As though, well, now you're sober, well, alcohol dealt with done deal we're fine now and i'm doing the program so that i feel better now this has got a number of problems number one the program will not always make you feel better you give me a choice between two days day number one zero sponsee phone calls i can play the piano i can go for a run i can learn my Japanese, I can do whatever else I'm doing. I can party. Uh, option number two, 23 calls come in and I answer them all painstakingly. I mean, I do enjoy it, but there are days when it's not super fun. There are days when like eight calls in a row are tricky. It doesn't, that the actions of the program in the moment are not always fun. They're not always, they're not always gonna make you feel better. Step nine is not comfortable. Step five is not comfortable. If I'm doing it to feel better, as soon as it, it doesn't make me feel better, I'm going to stop doing it. And this is the almost universal experience of people in AA, that when the actions that AA asks them to do become difficult or uncomfortable, they stop. If, and this is the Mark Houston line, which I think is so brilliant, uh, and this is, I mean, you have, you have to forgive his slightly difficult tone. Um, to, this is to people that have been stuck on step eight and nine for five years, maybe. For, well, yeah, I've got the list, um, but, you know, I'm going to do the amendments in God's time. What Mark Houston says is, if you believed that whether or not you drank whiskey tonight, depended on whether you made those final amends today you would be making those amends if you truly understood you were alcoholic so the question in aa of why do people slip after five years 10 years 15 years 20 years why do people go back to drinking uh it's a complicated answer there are lots of different reasons for lots of different people there isn't a single answer which explains everything but i i'm i'm of the view i may be wrong that one part of it um, is the belief that uh, the real reason we do the program is just to improve our material lives so we get our own way better, so we can be more successful in the world. I got my life back. I have a bit, you hear people saying, I've got a big life today. I have. That's the problem. My sponsor says the problem with any sentence is if it starts with the word I. <laughs> so if I'm doing the steps for me, 
the, the project is totally different than if I'm doing the steps because I'm done with me and I need to train myself to be a servant of God. The exercise is completely different. And it all goes back to this construal of step one. Um, so that's that. Lecture two over. <laughs> um, the Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. We agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems. When others showed us that God's sufficiency worked with them, we began to feel like those who had insisted the rights would never fly. I think it's an important point here. Uh, once people have acquired some skill with the program, it's very common, I've done it, to think, well, now I know how it works. I can go off and work the program on my own. I really don't need to consult God anymore. I don't need to ask God for direction. I don't need to ask God, God for strength. I'm just going to get on with it. What my old sponsor, Brian, said, he, he said it's like milk. Uh, you can't, you don't get your milk and you, you and then carry it around for the rest of your life. It goes sour very quickly. You have to keep going back to the udder. And I think it's like that with God. You, I keep having to go back to God again and again and again. I find myself bereft again and again and again on a regular basis. Logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like it. It is not by chance that we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses and to draw conclusions. That is one of man's magnificent attributes. We, agnostically inclined, would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we're at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it is more sane and logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said, we don't know. Um, now, all of that is very straightforward until we get to the last point. What it's saying here, and it's very bold, it's saying, you agnostics who are reading this, you cannot sit on the fence any longer. The British historian David Starkey said that the, the reason the British the British like to sit on the sit on the fence such a lot is because they enjoy the sensation. But that's an aside. The the point here <laughs> is it's no good saying, well, I don't know if there's a higher power. Like, yes, so you're in a meeting, you're sitting next to Susan, Bobby, and Sally. Either they're sober or they're not. Either they were powerless over alcohol or they're not. Either the sober fairy hit them with a sober stick and it's just random, or there's a system working here. Pick one. You've got to pick. Do you believe this works for others? Uh, either you believe it or you don't. You cannot sit on the fence with this. You can sit on the fence about, you know, which came first, matter or mind. You can sit on the fence about the philosophical conception of the universe. You can sit on the fence about what God is. But the fact that there is a power which enables alcoholics to stay sober and thrive, you can't sit on the fence about that. Either the whole thing is, is fake news or something real is happening. Pick one. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. Now, we're not talking about the conception of God, but God being a term for the power that transforms people's lives. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Now, up to this point, the only thing we've been asked to get our heads round is the idea that the program has worked for others. And that is based on fact, history, what's already happened. What, what, what can I reasonably hypothesize as to why these people are sober? We're being presented with an idea there is a power available in the universe that can be systematically accessed. So far, so good. That's just, to use David Hume's uh, 
example. Um, so now, this is why reason can't get you all the way there. If you've got a jar with marbles in it and you can't see, uh, and you can't see inside the jar, you can put your hand in and you can pull out a marble one at a time. And you want to know what's in the jar. You pull out the first marble, it's a black marble. You pull out the second marble, it's a black marble. You keep pulling out marbles. Every single one is black. But you cannot say that you know for certain that if you put your hand in again, the next marble you pull out will be black. Can't prove it. Can't prove it scientifically. And this, this was Hume's argument against a certain type of, of, of uh, logic. And it's a bit like that with AA. That although it's, it's, there's a reasonable assumption that it's worked for Bob and Sally and Susan and Trent and Taylor and all of the Alan Tegan, these new names we have in AA we didn't have 30 years ago. Um, everyone was called John 30 years ago. It's all, it's all different now. <laughs> um, just because it's worked for them, we can hypothesize, we can speculate, well, it'll work for me, but we can't prove it. That is why faith is needed. Faith is the courage to take the actions to test the hypothesis. If I take the steps exactly as set out in the big book, being a kind of finickety old fool about it, I'm gonna bloody well do everything in here exactly as it says. That's testing the hypothesis. That is the scientific approach, but you need a little bit of faith to take the, uh, to test the hypothesis. In other words, faith is the ability to, to invest your time and energy based on a speculative idea because you cannot prove a future event. What has this got to do with God being everything or God being nothing? Um, the idea here, I won't get into conceptions of God too much. There's too much of a rabbit hole. I think the, the simple idea is this. Um, God being everything means this system that we have in AA, in principle, should work for anyone. That's all. One doesn't need to, to understand this idea of God being everything more deeply than that. It's as simple as that. If it works for all these people, there's enough evidence for me to take the plunge, test the hypothesis, see if it'll work for me as well. And the, the and this and the next point is terrible. I think it's terribly important. It's why, oh, so controversial. I don't really approve of special interest groups. Uh, so groups which limit their membership or skew their membership by some kind of criterion so that everyone's got something in common. I think, I may be wrong, I think AA works is because you have such a weird range of people in the room that for you to say it's not going to work for me is laughable. There's the bin man, there's the duchess, there are people who are 17. There are people who are 93. There are people who are very articulate and compelling when they speak. There are people that can't string a sentence together and it works for all of them. They all take the same action. It, 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 it comes out differently, but it works for everyone. It's the, it's the differences between people in a group which demonstrate the universality of God. If you go to a group where everyone's the same, so the ego will find a little difference between you and the self-selected group of people who seem to be the same. The, the universality, I think, is most readily demonstrated in a group where it's really clear that no one has anything in common other than alcoholism. And I learned all of the uh, best, most useful things in AA from people that I have nothing in common with like my sponsor well, i have a couple of things in common with my sponsor uh but you know he's a texas oilman who lives in galveston um has a ranch in west texas we have nothing in common. it shouldn't work but that's the whole point the point is the differences 
Um, so uh, there we go. That was my third little hobby horse of the evening. I'm really, really had my wheaties today. I'm going to stop there, Alistair. I'm, I'm very sadly we still we haven't got to the end of the chapter. So uh, with people's permission, then I'll be back next week. Thank you, Tim. Yes, it's, uh, yeah. So we'll pick it up next week. About halfway down, page fifty-three arrived at this point. Um, uh, I will just drop into the chat now. Uh, there's a link there for uh, if you want to listen to the recordings, previous recordings, and the recordings of tonight's meeting will be um, available in the coming days. And. Uh, uh, with that, I'll hand it back to you, Tim, and uh, ask you to uh, close in the usual way, please. Thank you for keeping me company this evening. I would have felt a fool saying all that to, a, to, a, to an empty screen. Um, so would you please help me close with the serenity prayer? God. God. Grant me the serenity. Grant me the serenity. To accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you to you, everyone. Thank you, too. Bye bye. Bye, Thanks, Alistair.